0: And Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about types of headaches. There's a lot that we're going to be talking about, so we're going to move pretty quickly. Um, but again, you'll, you should be able to understand this because we're, we're going to be using our notes, some of our illustrations. And again, if you haven't already watched it, make sure to go check out our YouTube channel. We have types of headaches as a lecture already to really help you learn
1: a lot of this stuff. But we're gonna get right into it. So, Zach, how you feeling, man? I feel pretty good. Headaches are pretty common. I think that it is something that at some point, in time in your career, you will be exposed to. So, you have to be able to delineate: is this a secondary headache, a primary headache, and if it is a primary, which one is it—a migraine, a cluster, attention? So, I think it's a a great, great topic for um, just a well-rounded clinician. All right, so let's just jump right into it. Then we're gonna have a. a- First, an introduction
0: on really the fundamentals of headaches. And then we're going to start by talking about secondary headaches first then moving into primary headaches. So yeah. Zach, go ahead and give us a, a good run through here.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good start. Uh, just basic concept of a headache is that it's really defined as just irritation or stimulation of a lot of the blood vessels near or around the dura mater, um, the trigeminal nerve, or like some of the muscles around the cranium, particularly around the head and the neck. So whenever there's irritation or stimulation of those particular blood vessels in those area, dura mater, trigeminal nerve, or pericranial muscles, this can actually trigger a headache. All right. Now, types of headaches, I think Rob kind of like started this off pretty well. Secondary headaches, these are the scary ones. These are usually accompanied by particular underlying diseases or conditions that need to be elucidated relatively quickly. Um, and then the second one would be primary headaches. And those are going to be, again, your very classic headaches, your cluster headaches, your migraines, and your tension headaches. So let's start off with the scary ones because whenever a patient comes into like an engineering clinic and they say, okay. I got a really bad headache. It's important for us to delineate very specific red flag signs. And the reason why I'm looking for red flag signs is this is going to determine my need to get an image on them. Because oftentimes if it's a primary headache, like a cluster headache, a tension headache, or a migraine, I don't need to be getting images of their brain. But if I have a patient who presents with these red flag signs that really scare me that something else inside of the actual brain is going on or inside of the skull is going on, I need to go ahead and get an actual image. So you guys can remember this by our good old friend, snoop. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about the snoop mnemonic uh it's going to be s for systemic symptoms. So if a patient has like fever, if they have like weight loss, if they have like myalgia, arthralgia, those are important. Also secondary risk factors. So I would really be on point if a patient has like uh, some underlying HIV, um, immunosuppression or malignancy. That definitely puts them at high risk for something to happen inside of the skull. So look for systemic ha- symptoms and secondary risk factors such as HIV, malignancy and immunosuppression. The N in Snoop is for neurological deficits. If they have weakness, if they're having sensory loss, if they're having some type of aphasia, if they're having vision loss, or if they're having seizures, again, that's very scary for something going on inside of the cranium. O is for old age, and there's actually two O's here. Old age, if they're greater than or equal to 50, definitely high risk for malignancy onset is abrupt or acute. And what I really want you guys to think about here is someone having like a thunderclap headache. Like it is the worst headache of their entire life. Never had a headache, anything like that before. That is very concerning for like a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Then we have a bunch of P's, so three P's. So we have an S an N, two O's for onset and uh, again, old age, and then three particular P's, or actually four P's, I apologize, four P's. So papilla edema. So you get out your um, ophthalmoscope, you take a look at that eye and you really are able to kind of look and see that their um, optic disc is really edematous. It looks swollen and they have a ton of papilla edema. That's a very concerning sign for high intracranial pressure. The next thing is that the pattern changes from their usual headache. So let's say that a patient says, I normally have like some headaches and it's usually kind of like not too bad, but today, oh my gosh, it's way, way worse. It's like pounding, it's stabbing, it's throbbing, whatever it may be. It's just completely different from their usual headache. That's an important thing to be able to delineate. So ask that question to the patient. "You You have headaches? Oh yeah. Are they anything like this? No, that's a concerning sign. That's a red flag sign. The next thing is positional. So if the patient has a headache that's really worse when they're lying down or whenever they're getting up in the morning and it's better when they're sitting up or walking around, that's very concerning for a malignancy, believe it or not. And then the last one is that whenever a patient is doing like a Valzava maneuver or they're coughing, what happens is that if they have a precipitation or worsening of their underlying headache when they're coughing or valsalving, What happens is you increase your intrathoracic pressure when you Valzava. All right, That decreases the venous drainage from your cerebral veins, increases venous congestion, increases ICP. If somebody already has something going inside of their skull that they have high ICP and you increase it even more, you're going to worsen their headache. So again, quick things, patient comes in having a headache. Think about Snoop Dogg. Think about, again, systemic symptoms, secondary risk factors. In neurological deficits. O old age greater than 50. O onset abrupt and very intense thunderclap. P papilla edema. P pattern changes from their usual headache. P positional, worse when they're lying flat or when they get up in the morning, better when they're standing and walking around. And the last P is it's precipitated by vazavas or coughing, anything that increases their ICP if they already have increased ICP. Does that make sense, Rob, for the secondary kind of red flag stuff? Makes perfect sense. Scary stuff. Yeah, it is. It's really important to be able to pick this up. So whenever a patient comes in, you pick up some of these particular red flag signs, it should very, very importantly trigger you to think about what could be the differential for a secondary headache and then how do I go about it figuring out what that cause is. So secondary headaches, it's important to think about it in a couple different ways. It can be caused by mass occupying lesions, non-mass occupying lesions, or pathology that's outside of the central nervous system. And we'll go over each one of those. So let's talk about first about mass occupying lesions, things that are occupying the actual structure inside of the brain, increasing ICP. First thing, think about anything that increases what it actually, what's inside of the skull, blood, brain tissue, and cerebral spinal fluid. You increase any one of those three, you're going to increase the intracranial pressure. So what increases blood inside the brain? Hematomas, epidural hematoma, subdural hematoma, intraparenchymal hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhages. Think about those. And Rob, what is that classic type of like buzzword term for subarachnoid uh, hemorrhages? thunderclap baby yeah thunderclap worst headache of their entire life be thinking about that for subarachnoid hemorrhage so whenever you're thinking about these particularly i could just get a ct scan right so if i get a ct scan of the head i'll be able to pick up an epidural i'll be able to pick up a subdural i'll be able to pick up an intraparenchymal i'll be able to pick up a subarachnoid hemorrhage if i'm concerned about what's the cause of the subarachnoid hemorrhage i can actually make sure it's on an aneurysm and get a cta or you can do a lumbar puncture to rule out the xanthochromia but those to be the things that I would do right off the get-go. If I get an image of their head, I'd be able to delineate which one of those it is. Second thing, it's not an increase in blood. It's an increase in brain tissue. So they have a brain tuber, right? GBM, a meningioma, a metastatic tumor, whatever it may be. If they're coming in and they're presenting with what? Oh, first off, if it was blood, if it had a lot of those problems like the blood, thunderclap headache is the big, big term that you want to be able to remember, but think about neuro deficits, guys. So if a patient's coming in with neuro deficits, that's also going to lead you to think about some type of like brain bleed. Brain tissue, so tumors. Think about the signs of malignancy, old age, greater than 50, systemic symptoms, low grade fever, weight loss. They may have some types of neuro deficits or neuro behavior. So seizures are very, very common with brain masses. Headache is worse when there lying down flat, or whenever they're kind of getting up in the morning, it's better whenever they're walking around or sitting. Whenever you have them cough, Valzava, it worsens their headaches. Think about those things. Well, what would I do to figure that out? CT of the head. I might find a mass. I might find some type of malignancy there. If I really want to get a better look at it, I can do a MRI. And if I want to figure out if it was a metastatic one, I could do a CT of their chest, abdomen, pelvis, and see if there was a tumor somewhere else that it spread to the brain. But that's the way I would go about figuring out that. The other thing I would want you guys to think about besides an increase in brain tissue is that due to like a a, a GBM or meningioma or some type of uh, metastatic tumors. Think about a pituitary adenoma. This is a really big one. So if a patient comes in, they have headache, but they have, here's the key term. Ready? Bitemporal hemianopia. You guys, you remember that, Rob? Whenever it's compressing near the optic chiasma, you lose the visual fields in the lateral aspect of the eye. So both your right and left eye, you'll lose your lateral visual fields. Oh, yeah. Your peripheral vision. So look for that also. If it's um, a tumor there, usually it's prolactin, uh, prolactinomas. So those secrete prolactin. So th- sometimes males will get tits, right? They'll end up with uh gynecomastia. They may have uh, females. They may have galactorrhea where they're having like leakage. So look for that. Look for erectile dysfunction, decreased libido. Those things may be important or for a female, maybe she's missing some of her menstrual cycles. But again, I would get a CT. So CT would be a great thing. You'd be able to pick up a pituitary mass. If you're really kind of like not sure off the CT, you can get an MRI. But again, think about that with the bitemporal hemianopia. That's a key one and not any signs of prolactinemia. Okay, so particularly gynecomastia, galactorrhea, menstrual irregularities. All right. So that's another one for the brain uh, tissues. Another type of brain tissue problem would be a brain abscess. So if you have a big fat abscess that's occupying space within the brain, think about that. If the patient has headache, if they have neurological deficits, depending upon where the abscess is, obviously will determine their neuro and then fevers. That's a big one. You get an MRI or a CT, you'll be able to pick it up. Usually we do with contrast because the the contrast will enhance around the abscess, like a ring enhancing lesion. So that might be a big thing. All right. So we got mass occupying lesions due to increased blood, such as the bleeds. Then we got mass occupying lesions due to increased brain tissue, such as meningiomas, GBMs, or some type of met. Then we got the pituitary adenoma and then we get the brain abscess. The third thing is that there's increased CSF. That was the third problem, right? So think about hydrocephalus. So hydrocephalus, usually these patients present very somnolent. They present usually very, very kind of like altered in some way. They have headaches. But here's the big thing. Think about the reasons. So there's something actually clogging up the ventricles that they can't get good cerebrospinal fluid flow. So like an intraventricular hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage or a tumor. And then the other thing is that there's actually like clogging up the arachnoid villi. Right. So if someone has like a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage or meningitis, that can really kind of like clog up the arachnoid villa and then they can't clear. It. So look for a communicating or obstructive hydrocephalus. Really easy way to think about this one is usually they can't kind of like they have very limited vertical gaze. So if you see a patient with vertical gaze palsy, very somnolent, very tired, they have headaches, go get a CT scan. You'll see these big watermelon ventricles and that'll kind of tell you, oh, there's hydrocephalus. The that would actually cover the mass occupying lesions. Let's move into the next part here, Rob, which is the non mass occupying kind of like CNS pathology. So it's not like a big mass where there's an increase in blood, increase in brain tissue or increase in CSF. This is just like other types of lesions. So, One would be uh, meningitis or encephalitis. So whenever you have a patient who has meningitis or encephalitis, it really causes agitation of the meninges near the dura mater. Remember what I told you if you irritate the dura mater, where blood vessels are, that'll cause headaches. So in these patients, they have a lot of like meningeal signs. So look for photophobia, phonophobia, neck stiffness, the Brzezinski's, the Kernig's types of signs, headaches, neurodeficits, all of those and big fevers. Big way to diagnose it, MRI, and then obviously a lumbar puncture would be kind of the best thing to pick up and what kind of pathogen you're actually looking for. Another one is called a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So this is a clot with inside of the cerebral veins. It's basically like a DVT of the brain. And you're looking for this, again, headaches. Usually papilledema is a really, really big one. They also can present with seizures due to the high intracranial pressure, um, nausea, vomiting. And here's the big thing. Look for this in younger females. Okay, The reason why is that usually females who are on oral contraceptives, that's one particular reason, or they have hypercoagulable states. So sometimes you can see this in women who are pregnant. Those would be really big populations to think about. Or if they have some type of hypercoagulable disorder like factor V Leiden or uh, antiphospholipid syndrome or something of that nature. So look for this in hypercoagulable conditions or young females who are on oral contraceptives or are pregnant. These are big, big things to think about. Usually you'll see this on an MRV because it'll actually show the venous clot where you're having a filling defect, which is actually pretty cool. Okay. So we have meningitis and encephalitis. We got cerebral venous sinus, thrombosis. The next one, which can actually cause head and neck pain, which is a really, really important one is called um, carotid or vertebral artery dissections. So this would be low on my differential, but if they were in some type of trauma and they had tinnitus, they had ringing in their ears, and they had potential neurodeficits because imagine if you kind of like, imagine you dissected your right carotid or you dissected your right vertebral and now you can't get blood flow up the right carotid or up the right vertebral. You could potentially stroke out the territories that that carotid supplies or the vertebral supplies and develop neurodeficits according to that area. So look for signs of stroke look for any pulsatile tinnitus look for really bad neck pain headaches and usually after some type of trauma maybe they went to the chiropractor and boom there we go or they got into a car you just got a lot of chiropractors mad yeah i know (laughs) please forgive me uh or you're on like a you know like some type of uh, amusement park and you make a big hard turn boom or you're coughing or sneezing things like that or you're in a motor vehicle accident can really dissect those vessels so look for that but here's one of the big hallmark signs that they may present on the vignette if it's a carotid or vert dissection, there's that sympathetic plexus that runs right near the carotids, particularly if you hit that, you may hit those sympathetic vessels that supply the muscles of the levator palpebra. Um, so you may develop ptosis of the upper eyelid. You may have a, a particularly a meiosis. So you can't actually dilate the people instead. It actually kind of constricts. And then the last one is they have um, anhydrosis. They can't sweat, particularly on like the forehead area. So look for that in these patients. Best thing to do is get a CTA of the the head and neck. Um, maybe you can do like Doppler's, um, like ultrasound of the neck as well. And that might be able to pick that up. Or angiography would be like really the best thing to really pick up a dissection, but those would be um that particular thing okay what else do we got here the next thing that i also want us to talk about here is going to be um what's called idiopathic cranial hypertension so pseudotumor cerebri. again it's a non-mass occupying lesions so you got meningitis encephalitis cerebral sinus thrombosis, carotid dissection. The next one is pseudotumor cerebri. Now in this one, it's actually no pr- specific kind of like real underlying reason as to why this happens. It's just these patients have kind of a very interesting high intracranial pressure. You usually seen in obese women who are on oral contraceptives, who are taking like a doxycycline or minocycline for some reason, but there's really no true etiology. We just see it in this patient population, obese women on uh, oral contraceptives or on some type of tetracycline, doxycycline, minocycline, one of those. And what you're looking for, here's the big thing. Remember when we went back to the snoop mnemonic, these patients have a terrible headache when you have them Valzava or if you have them cough because they already have high ICP. You have them cough, valzava. What do you do? You drop the vein drainage from the cerebral veins, increase their ICP even more, worsens their headache. That's a key, key feature there. The other thing is that they have high ICP. It really causes a lot of fluid to accumulate around the optic nerve. So they have papilla edema. And anytime you have high ICP, you can actually have a decreased level of consciousness. You can have nausea, vomiting. What else did I say? Just like in hydro, you can have a vertical gaze palsy. So look for any kind of like vertical gaze palsy or double vision kind of thing as well. So. Those would be big things to think about. It's not a hydrocephalus. It's just they have very high ICP. And because of this, their big kind of like uh, pathognomonic thing to remember is very uh, worse headaches whenever they Valzava or cough. And then obese women on oral contraceptives and again on some type of tetracycline. Okay. The next thing that I would think about here is going to be, so we had the mass occupying lesions. We had the non-mass occupying lesions, and then we can have like pathology outside of the central nervous system that can cause weird headaches. So remember when we talk about headaches, it's irritation of blood vessels near dura mater, trigeminal nerve, or pericranial muscles. So do you know, whenever you have a patient with sinusitis, whenever they have sinusitis, they can actually have a lot of like pressure that can build up around their actual pericranial muscles in their face. And so because of that, if they have a lot of that pressure there, usually that can present with headaches. But look for sinusitis. What would that be a sign of? They'll have nasal congestion. Maybe they'll have purulent nasal drainage. Maybe they'll have fevers. Maybe they'll have headaches. So look for those. And then tenderness, if you go ahead and touch like around their actual maxillary or frontal sinuses, it'll be very tender. So that might be an obvious diagnosis for sinusitis and they can have headaches related to that. Another one is acute angle closure glaucoma. So whenever these patients have this buildup of pressure around their eye, because they aren't able to drain some of the aqueous humor into their scleral venous sinus, the pressure builds up in their anterior posterior chamber and it just causes an increase in intraocular pressure. And because of that, you're, it's going to actually be kind of transfixed or work against, against like the optic nerve area and against nearby cranial nerves and again, blood vessels near the dura matter. And so because of that, that's going to produce a pretty significant headache, but look for orbital pain, look for ocular hyperemia, look for mid fixed steamy uh, dilated pupils that's a pretty common sign of glaucoma okay the next one is giant cell arteritis or temporal arteritis. so usually these patients are going to be greater than or equal to 50 the vessel that supplies kind of like their um ext- their external carotid artery right that actually gives off many different branches one goes to the muscles of the actual jaw if you can't actually, if you have like an inflammation of that vessel and you can't supply those muscles, you can develop like difficulty or pain with chewing. So claudication of the jaw. It also gives off branches that actually go to the, the uh, eye. So they may have like a monocular vision loss. And then again because it's also going to be supplying some of the muscles near the temple, it really causes this very significant pain and tenderness near the temple that sometimes it's really so difficult to even touch or even brush their hair it's like ex- extremely painful. So look for that that temporal pain that's really painful greater than 50 jaw claudication vision changes. That's a very common sign. Also usually they have it's associated with polymyalgia rheumatica. So they may have some proximal muscle weakness as well, but Send off an ESR, CRP, um, or if you really want to, a temporal artery biopsy maybe be something to really rule that in. The next one is trigeminal neuralgia. This is a very terrible terrible disorder it's also known as a suicide disease but in this situation usually these patients have some type of artery like the superior cerebellar artery that mashes on the trigeminal ganglia and just causes this intense pain it is this stabbing electric um, pain that usually radiates throughout the side of the face that's affected so it's usually kind of like a unilateral pain so it's a one-sided pain on one side of the face that you were just mashing on that trigeminal ganglia and it causes intense lancinating stabbing lightning type of pain that's usually on one side of the face and it's usually can be just triggered by a patient chewing it can be triggered by um, smiling touching their face or even like the wind just hitting their face isn't that terrible man that's like horrible i can't even imagine yeah, that that's, but that's really it's it's that's it very terrible no and then it can happen like 10 to 100 times yeah, a that's, day that's insane that's a scary kind of thing to think about but usually that's one of the key features is this stabbing electric very intense pain that occurs on one side of the face And it's usually exacerbated by chewing or wind hitting their face or kind of touching their face or smiling. And it can happen multiple times a day. Usually, um, you can get an MRI or MRA to look to see where the superior cerebral artery is compressing the the trigeminal ganglia nerve. And that would be kind of a, a thing to see for that one. Um, I think that would... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> finally cover the, yeah, the secondary that, headaches. That was a lot. That oh was my lot. gosh,
0: it was. But um important to know those because those are all the, the red flag conditions there. But now we're going to go ahead and move into primary headaches, which a lot of us have experienced ourselves. Absolutely. Um
1: And definitely try to understand a little bit more about primary headaches. Yeah, so when we talk about primary headaches, now we can get into the migraines, the clusters, the tension headaches. So first thing I think with migraines is that these are one of the second most common ones. And generally it's very interesting where you, the, the causes behind this There's not like a a telltale kind of like cause, but think about this in patients who have like a family history, especially like patients who have family histories of migraines. Sometimes they can develop what's called a familial hemiplegic migraine, where they can literally develop like plegia and weakness on one side of their body. So it's an important one to remember, especially if they have a very consistent family history of migraines. But particularly in the vignettes, you're going to see that a patient is like has some particular trigger that caused their headache. It's a trigger. So red wine chocolate um pizza um or you know something that has lots and lots of cheese on it <laughs> so you know they, usually they say patients who are having lots of cheese and wine and chocolate um those would be big it's big just things my daily night right <laughs> <laughs> for having a good night that's yeah that's exactly Migraine right city baby yep um other things i think about is oral contraceptives so if a females on oral contraceptives their young age or really loud sounds bright lights those are things that are usually triggered so don't forget red wine chocolate um, usually lots of cheese products, oral contraceptives, and then loud sounds, um, bright lights. Usually that'll trigger some type of pathophysiological process. Now, I think it's really beyond the scope of this to talk about all the pathophys because it's not even certain as to really how this happens. There's just some type of theory called the cortical spreading depression theory. Um, and I would not want to go down this route because it's not even guaranteed. But usually one of the biggest things is that these patients very commonly start with a very low pinpoint kind of location their occipital lobe where they start to develop this kind of like issue where there's lots of serotonin release and then they start to have this spread that goes from the occipital lobe all the way kind of forward towards their frontal lobe and if you start with an occipital lobe usually that affects your vision right So usually these patients start off where they have some type of like visual aura. So they have like, what's called scintillating scotomas, like these like weird, like squealy lights that they see in their eyes. And then afterwards, then they start off with these really, really rough headaches. So I think it's really important to understand just the basic is that usually these migraines are triggered by some type of thing called the cortical spreading depression theory. Now, without really going down that pathway, let's talk about how these patients really kind of present, because that's the key feature. Let's not get locked up in the pathophys. Usually the easiest way to remember this is by the what's called the pound mnemonic. So a patient will come in and they'll have a pulsatile type of headache. They'll have difficulty or pain, particularly uh, sensitivity to light. So they'll have what's called um, photophobia. They'll also have sensitivity to sound where it causes their headache to be really worse and it hurts. Phonophobia. So look for a pulsatile headache with photophobia and phonophobia. That's for the P of the pound mnemonic. O is it's usually only one day in duration. Usually you won't get this thing for more than one day. If it is, the max that you'll see it is up to about 72 hours, but it's usually one day in duration. Second thing for the pound mnemonic is the U or the third thing. It's unilateral pulsatile headache so it's a pulsatile headache usually unilateral one side photophobia phonophobia and one day in duration here's the other big things n and d nausea and vomiting may be associated with this headache and then lastly is that these migraines can be so bad that they can be literally disabling in intensity where people can't even do their normal daily activities and it can affect their quality of life okay so remember the pound mnemonic unilateral Pulsatile headache, photophobia, photophobia, one day in duration, unilateral, again, we already said that one, nausea, vomiting associated with it, and again, disabling and in intensity. Usually before the headache starts, they have an aura sometimes, and this is usually where it starts off visual. So they have like these kind of like weird looking like squiggly lights that appear within their eyes, and then they start to develop the actual unilateral headache, the photophobia, the phonophobia, the nausea, the vomiting, etc. okay? Okay. Sometimes patients may involve like sensory changes and motor changes, but I wouldn't really go down that route just because it's not super, super important to remember. Okay. Usually that's when you start getting into other kind of like variants of migraines, like where they start having like brainstem auras and hemiplegic migraines, et cetera. So just remember the pound mnemonic and the aura that usually is associated prior to the headache. So I think the big question is, is how do you diagnose this? It's really a clinical diagnosis. So that's why I really want you guys to remember that pound mnemonic, because it's really important. If you have a patient with unilateral pulsatile headache, photophobia, phonophobia, nausea, vomiting, one day in duration, disabling intensity with or without an aura that precedes it. This is usually classic of a migraine. Now here it is. You don't need imaging. You don't need to get an imaging for these patients. Now here's the, here's the thing. Remember I told you that sometimes there's variants. So brainstem aura, hemiplegic migraines, the patient comes in, they have a history of migraines, And they're having some potential weakness or paresthesias or uh, diplopia, dysarthria, vertigo, ataxia, all of that kind of stuff. That is concerning. So sometimes, if it is, you know, they have actually say, "Oh, I have a history of hemiplegic migraines." You don't need to get an image, but let's say it's the patient's first hemiplegic migraine or vestibular migraine. It can be relatively daunting and scary, and thinking that they're having some type of like you know secondary process going on. So just be aware when a patient comes in with their first hemiplegic migraine, where they're having weakness or sensory deficits, or they have like a vestibular migraine where they're having like severe vertigo and double vision and dysarthria, et cetera it may be warranted to get an image of their head just to make sure. But if they've had a history of hemiplegic migraines or brainstemora, don't get an MRI or, an, or a CT because you know that it's likely their cause. Okay. Especially if they've had a history of them because it's more of a clinical diagnosis. But again, use your Snoop mnemonic to really help to divvy out which ones should go to get an image. All right. So that would cover the diagnosis. Now the treatment is relatively straightforward. Acutely, if a patient comes in with this terrible, terrible type of migraine, you're going to treat the symptomatic nausea and vomiting. So generally we give them some fluid to give them back the fluid that they've vomited. On top of that, try to get them to stop vomiting. So metoclopramide, prochlorperazine. there's actually pretty beneficial drugs because not only do they treat the nausea, they have some type of benefit on the migraine itself as well. So give them 10 milligrams IV of um, metoclopramide or prochlorperazine, five to 10 milligrams IV plus maybe a, like one or two liters of like normal saline or LR. Okay, then we move on to the next part, which is, okay. how do we treat the actual headache itself? So if the patient is like a mild to moderate type of headache, you can give them like NSAIDs, ibuprofen, naproxen, ketorolac, acetaminophen, give them pretty good doses of that. So that's one thing. Now, if the headache is really, really bad, so you've given them the NSAIDs, it's not getting any better. Then I would move to something that's a little bit stronger. So I would consider things like triptans. So triptans are really good for kind of like abortive therapy to really stop and shut down the migraine. So sumatriptan is actually a pretty good one. Zolmitriptan is another one. Usually sumatriptan is the pretty common one. If they can tolerate PO, give them like 85 milligrams of sumatriptan, maybe with 500 milligrams of naproxen as a combo on um, like every two hours until you max it out. If they can't tolerate PO, you can give them a six milligram IM injection and you can generally do that about every hour until like you max that out. And you can also do like an intranasal spray, but generally sumatriptan is pretty much your good go-to there. Other alternatives besides sumatriptan or zolmatriptan is you can do the ergots. So dihydrogotamine. That may be another one, but we don't usually use that one too often. Another one that actually is not too bad for uh, migraines, especially for abortive care is dexamethasone. I think it's really good because it's going to lead you to hang that kind of like treatment to give you time for the prophylactic to kick in. So usually if a patient comes in and they have a migraine, I'll give them the fluid. I'll give them metaclopramide or procloparazine, one of the two. Then I'll try an NSAID. Generally, I like to try like Ketorolac, see if that works. If that doesn't work, then I'll give them some sumatriptan to see if we can shut that down. If they're still having it, then I'll hit them with a dose of Decadron or Dexamethasone. And so I'll give them about maybe anywhere from eight to 12 milligrams of Decadron as a one-time dose. And what that's going to do is that's going to give me a decent amount of time for me to start them on a prophylactic It'll allow for some of the other drugs to kick in acutely. And then I'll start them on a prophylactic uh, kind of therapy that'll really help to kind of prevent them from having attacks in the future. So that's the important thing to think about. So what are the prophylactic drugs that we can use? You can use anticonvulsants, believe it or not. Um, because they affect like the sodium channels and calcium channels of the vessels. So you can use things like topiramate, uh, 25 to 200 milligrams if you want to once daily. Valproate's another one, beta blockers. I actually do prefer beta blockers, propanolol is a pretty good one, 120 to 240 milligrams once daily. Um, and then second line is if for whatever reason they can't tolerate an anticonvulsant, like topiramate, valproate, if they can't tolerate a beta blocker for whatever reason, you can consider things like tricyclic antidepressants, not my preferred one, uh, but things like amitriptyline. The other thing is that really, really not a bad idea is to consider, kind of like consulting someone who can do injections of Botox. So sometimes Botox, a one, one of the actual botulinum toxins, can actually help, particularly with these patients with chronic migraines. Maybe like one injection, like every you know, a couple of weeks, like twelve weeks or something around that. The last one that I actually have found to be relatively helpful for patients, I think is personally one of the best ones prophylactically, is the CGRP antagonists. They're just crazy expensive, um, but these are your um, umabs, so arunimab, galcanezumab. These are really, really great drugs. And if we were to go on through the pathophysiology, which I kind of skipped over with migraines, you'll notice that one of the big, big kind of like chemicals that really triggers the activation of like uh, nerves, particularly involved in headaches is something called CGRP. So it's calcitonin gene related peptide. If you're giving them a drug like a CGRP antagonist, you're inhibiting that potent chemical that can be triggering headaches or migraines, if you will. So again, acutely fluid anti metoclopramide or procloparazine. Try NSAIDs, Ketorolac is my preferred. After that, Sumatriptan to really kind of shut it down, either PO or IM, you can consider intranasal. I really kind of stay away from the ergots. Zolmitriptan is also another one that you can consider. After I've done that and I've given them a couple hips of sumatriptan, I will also start them on Decadron to give it time for the actual prophylactic that I'm going to start to maybe get to start working and kicking in. So I'll give them a hit of 8 to 12 milligrams of Decadron and then start them on a prophylactic such as my preferred is CGRP antagonist like galcanezumab or erenumab. And if that's not an option, I will start an anticonvulsant like topiramate, valproate, or propanolol. All right. That covers migraines, Rob. Wow. All right. Sounds good to me. Uh, we're going to now move into cluster headaches. So cluster headaches, when we talk about this one, uh, think about triggers. So we said the triggers for the migraine was the, you know, red wine, cheese, chocolate, all that kind of stuff like that. This one, still same thing, but I would actually more particularly worry about smoking. So look for smoking in an individual. Look for... Um, a lot of emotional stressors, so usually this is a big, big stress kind of thing, um, excessive alcohol consumption, and then usually males. So again, smokers, males, excessive alcohol intake, and a lot of stress in their life. The real kind of pathophysiology, again, I think it really kind of gets a little intense to really go through all of this and i don't know if it yields as much valuable information as we really need so i'm going to kind of forgo the pathophysiology for these kinds of uh, cluster headaches but i think thank god (laughs) (laughs) i just don't know if it really yields a lot for you guys it gets really intense um Oh, I, I think, I'm
0: just looking ahead. That's all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think it, the, the big thing to be able to pick up here is not like trying to be able to talk about pathophysiology for these patients, because really it's their clinical features that are kind of the key to diagnosis. Sometimes pathophys is really great for those complex diseases, but these are diseases that if you they're not really super complex in that sense that you can really pick up everything from their clinical features as a way of clinically diagnosing these patients. The pathophys may help with the pharmacology, but even then, there's still a lot of question as to how these actual pharmacological agents work on these paths. Ways. So, I would stick with how do these patients present. The big characteristics here is that it's unilateral, just like migraines. But here's the big kind of thing it's sharp, stabbing, and burning. Okay. Sharp, stabbing, burning. With migraines, it was more of a kind of pulsatile type of nature. So you have a unilateral headache, just like migraine, but it's burning, sharp, stabbing. Usually where the headache actually occurs is also key. It usually is near the eye. So orbital, super orbital, maybe even extend a little bit into the temporal, but really look for that headache to be really located near the eye. So stabbing, burning, kind of like pain, unilateral, around the eye. So in the eye, around the eye, even behind the eye, you're going to feel this. Here's the big thing. These types of headaches last anywhere from a couple minutes to a couple hours, and you can have multiple episodes in a day. Okay, here's the key feature here. I don't want you guys to forget this. They'll have this kind of like relapse where they'll have these headaches, a bunch of them, maybe one to eight episodes a day, about five to anywhere from five minutes to three hours for an attack. And they can have anywhere from one to eight of those attacks a day. But here's the crazy thing. They have a period where they go into remission and they don't have these headaches for almost up to another year. And then around the same time of that season, when they had it a year ago, around the same time in the day, there's this cyclical process where they go back into a relapse and they have this unilateral sharp stabbing burning pain around their eye, above their eye, behind their eye. That again can occur for three minutes, five minutes, up to three hours, and they can have multiple attacks within a day. That is key. Here's another thing to add on here. Don't forget that. Plus they have autonomic symptoms. Their autonomic nervous system gets involved where they actually have parasympathetic activation. So parasympathetic activation, sympathetic inhibition. Ready? If they have parasympathetic activation, they'll cause a lot of lacrimation. Okay. Maybe salivation and actual nasal secretions to be increased so they'll have a lot of lacrimation so they'll have kind of like watery eyes they'll have a lot of like nasal congestion and rhinorrhea so they'll have kind of like a fluid that's kind of leaking from their nose and on top of that they have a lot of like the blood vessel supply around the eye is kind of like increased and so they have ocular hyperemia so look for a red kind of eye look for nasal congestion or nasal rhinorrhea and then again look for lacrimation here's the other thing so that's the parasympathetic activation they have sympathetic inhibition and it looks like part partial horners that we sell in like the vert, vert and carotid dissection rob same thing they can have meiosis ptosis and an. Anhy- oh sorry no anhydrosis that's the key partial horners so they have ptosis, meiosis, but no anhydrosis on the same side that they're having that actual cluster headache. Okay. So recap unilateral, sharp stabbing type of orbital, retroorbital temporal pain. They can have up to one to eight attacks within a day lasting for five minutes. Up to three hours, they have a remission for about an entire year, and then it comes back at the same time in the year, the same time in the day, and they have the same type of attack associated with parasympathetic activation, lacrimation, nasal secretions, ocular hyperemia, and sympathetic inhibition, partial horners, meiosis, and ptosis on the same side of the headache, no anhydrosis. Okay. That is the key thing for this. So look for the classic type of characteristics that they have plus autonomic symptoms. That's your clinical diagnosis for these patients. Okay. Now, after we've clinically diagnosed this patient, and again, remember, cluster headache is actually the least common out of all these three. Whenever you start, supplemental oxygen is going to be the correct answer on the test. If they tell you what is the acute therapy, it's not like sumatriptans or anything like that. It's actually like oxygen. So non-rebreather, put them on a good amount of like oxygen. The whole theory behind that is if you give them like lots of oxygen, it can actually inhibit like a lot of the vascular process that are occurring near these neurons in the brain that are triggering these headaches near the, like the trigeminal nerve. Okay. So non-rebreather, put them on anywhere from like six, to 12 liters per minute, crank up the FiO2. And that usually is going to be one of the treatments. At the same time, while you're giving them oxygen, start giving them triptans as well. So you hit them with that sumatriptan, six milligram IM, because it's unlikely these people are going to be able to take PO. Plus they're going to have a mask on their face. I would do six milligrams IM every hour until like max doses hit or you can do like an intranasal spray like 20 milligrams if you really want to i would stay away from the ergots don't use those another thing that sometimes if it really it may help is i can actually do like a little lidocaine and i can actually do an intranasal lidocaine about one ml of like anywhere from four to ten percent and i can squirt that into the nose as well that might be beneficial but i'll start off oxygen sumatriptans and then from there i'll start the prophylactic therapy so i'll put them on either verapamil that's usually the first line okay as the prophylactic therapy and what i'll do is just like in um migraines rob where i'll start them on like decadron to give them time for maybe the prophylactic to get started and maybe kick in i'll do the same thing with cluster headaches i'll put them on prednisone and i'll put them on like anywhere from 50 to 80 milligrams once daily for about 10 to 12 days. And then I'll start verapamil around the same time. So 120 to 360 milligrams, three times daily. And that'll give them time for the rapamil to be able to kick in to prevent them from developing further relapses in the future. So that's kind of my preferred thing is to again, do prednisone as kind of like a bridge for the verapamil to be able to kick in. Other things that you can use as a prophylactic therapy instead of verapamil could be tapiramate or valproate, but I prefer verapamil because it's the first line agent. Okay. That would be the primary things to remember here for your cluster headaches. All righty. That leaves us with just one more left, and it should be the most common, right, Zach? Absolutely. Tension headaches, my friend. This is a big one. I think a lot of people usually have that feel like I have it most of my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had this quite a lot.
1: Yeah. And so usually the triggers is tension. So it's muscle tightness or tenderness, usually around like the pericranial muscles. Remember I told you headaches are irritation of the blood vessels near dura matter, trigeminal nerve, or pericranial muscles. Usually this is like in that neck, shoulder kind of area where there's a lot of tightness or facial muscle tightness. So think about this in patients who are stressed beyond all belief. A lot of emotional stress in their life is a really, really big trigger here. Dehydration, not sleeping. So sleep deprivation is a big one as well. Poor posture where you're causing like so much strain on those neck muscles and shoulder muscles. And all of those things are really, really gonna be causing a lot of tenderness and tightness of those muscles as well. Think about females usually. I don't mean to be like any kind of like person like this, but females usually have a little bit more of a higher stress type of lifestyle. So again, think about emotional stressors. Think about dehydration, sleep deprivation, poor posture and female sexes tends to be a little bit more common in that situation. Again, we're gonna forgo the pathway physiology, I don't think it's crucial here because again, clinical features are key and these patients, here's the key thing. It is a bilateral. So they're going to have pain on both sides of their head. Okay. Bilateral type of headache that is usually frontal And temporal. So imagine like a headband, if you will, that's going for around the front and on the sides of the actual head. That is going to be the pain location of where it is. So bilateral and a vice script or headband like type of appearance, frontal and temporal. Usually it's non pulsatile. It's honestly like. Like, imagine you're taking a vice grip and squeezing it onto their head. That's really what it is. It's like you're trying to wring their brain out. That's the pain that they're going to have. It's going to be kind of a vice grip, tight-like type of pain, band-like pain that goes frontal and bitemporal. Usually these can last anywhere from thirty minutes to about a week. So these are pretty, pretty like pain, annoying ones because of that muscle tightness, tenderness, the underlying trigger. Did you say a week? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes these can even last a week. Oh gosh! Thankfully, I have never had a a headache go for a week.
0: Um. Oh, my gosh.
1: Wow. I mean, typically they're like four to six hours, but they they really can extend upwards of a week. And I guess this is an easy differentiation between cluster migraine because those are unilateral, whereas this would be. Exactly. Bilateral. bilateral. So that's one of the big things. The other thing I think would be a differentiating factor is they don't have like those autonomic symptoms. So like nausea, vomiting, photophobia, phonophobia, lacrimation, nasal secretions, all that like Horner syndrome type of stuff. They have none of that. It's usually just the classic like neck stiffness tenderness associated with a bilateral temporal frontal vice grip band tight leg headache that typically is four to six hours but it can honestly last upwards of a week so those are the big big features to think about for these patients um that would be kind of like the clinical diagnosis for these patients i really wouldn't kind of go too crazy for this um now here's the thing they could could potentially have some like it, usually they have no aura that's the big thing there's that's another differentiation between this and migraines migraines don't have to have an aura either but tension headaches clinically usually do not have any type of aura at all there is some situations where these patients may have some slight hypersensitivity to light and slight hypersensitivity to sound and mild nausea but again it is nowhere near in comparison to migraines so i would just try to make it really easy on yourself and to make it very very clear because this is how the present on the vignette usually it is no nausea no vomiting no photophobia no phonophobia but remember in clinical reality like in the real world patients truly can have some type of nausea and vomiting you know what's crazy i didn't know this until i was in uh, clinical practice that sometimes patients can have a variant of both of these like you can have a patient who has a migraine and a tension headache at the same time oh
0: my god you're, So just making me feel even more bad yeah
1: exactly so sometimes they might not be in the clinical real world they might not be as clear cut but on your clinical vignette it's going to be that perfect case of bilateral frontal temporal vice grip band like type of headache that's usually non-pulsatile again last upwards of four to six hours, typically can last up to a week. Usually no nausea, vomiting, uh, photophobia, phonophobia are associated with it. Okay. In real life though, it could be present. Yeah, of of course. Now that would kind of hit off the clinical diagnosis for these patients. How do you treat them? It's kind of similar to migraine. You you kind of don't really, they don't have any nausea and vomiting, theoretically, so you don't treat that. They're not really having any kind of things where you have to give them like antiemetics or fluids. So just go straight to the next thing that you would, migraines. You're treating them with NSAIDs first. So ibuprofen, naproxen, ketorolac, acetaminophen, sometimes caffeine actually is somewhat helpful in these patients as well. That's for me.
0: If I'm having a headache, honestly, if if I have, uh, I know it, if I'm having a headache, I have some caffeine, I'm good to go then.
1: Yeah, sometimes it actually may be somewhat beneficial in patients with tension headaches. Yeah. So adding in a little bit of caffeine into, you know, sometimes they have mixtures um, between the two where you can actually have like a little bit of an NSAID and caffeine as well. But generally, like one of the NSAIDs, maybe a little bit of caffeine may be somewhat beneficial for these patients. Prophylactically, usually we don't always give prophylactics for tension headaches, but you can consider it. Um, generally, like tricyclic antidepressants are going to be one particular thing, amitriptyline. Um, other agents that you could potentially use, um, mirtazapine has been shown to be somewhat effective and venlafaxine has also been shown shown to be somewhat effective, but I wouldn't really take too much to these. I would think about NSAIDs, treating the underlying trigger, which is usually the big, big thing. And we'll talk about that in a second. Caffeine. So NSAIDs, caffeine, treating the underlying trigger. Those would be the primary things. And so what are the underlying triggers? If it's muscle tightness and tenderness, consider massage therapy, acupuncture, chiropractic care. Just don't get a good overt dissection or carotid dissection. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) Well, you know, try to stabilize some of those muscles, improve your posture. So physical therapy may be helpful. And sometimes if there's a lot of emotional stressors and things in your life that you're not able to kind of really get under control, sometimes you may benefit from some cognitive behavioral therapy as well as if there is some depression or stress or anxiety in your life, that might be some of the benefits of those tricyclic antidepressants the mirtazapine and the venlafaxine That's when I would consider those as prophylactic agents. But you're really trying to treat the underlying co- trigger for their actual tension headaches. But that would cover everything for headaches, Rob. Is that it already? I know, man. Is, if you feel by so fast. We, we're having a lot of fun today. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. a great
0: episode um, and a very well uh, talked about types of headaches. Beautifully done. Thanks, buddy. So, again, guys, if you aren't uh, already watching or, or looking at our website, YouTube, make sure you're watching the lectures, our website, make sure you're getting the notes and just go through all of this stuff. Make sure you pour through it because it does help you with repetition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I hope that this uh, podcast made sense. I hope that you guys really did enjoy it. I hope you gained something out of it and hope you had some fun in the in the process. And uh, yeah, as always, thank you until next time.